Welcome to the Ackerman Angle, your resource for what you need to know about wage and hour compliance. I'm Damian Delaney, and I am co-chair of Ackerman's wage and hour practice and a partner with the firm based in Los Angeles. And I'm Jeff Kimmel, co-chair of Ackerman's wage and hour practice and a partner based in the firm's New York office. Today, we'll be discussing wage and hour challenges associated with remote workers. In particular, we will address what employers should be looking out for to ensure that non-exempt workers are paid properly and compensated for all compensable time and what obligations an employer may have to pay certain expenses incurred by remote workers. Jeff, remote work was certainly nothing new uh, going into the COVID-19 pandemic, but after March 2020, due to the various shutdowns uh, that occurred in, as a response to COVID-19, remote work exploded. Before the pandemic started in 2019, only about 8% of the American workforce was fully remote. And maybe only 32% had hybrid relationships with their employer, where they would work a few days in the office and a few days out of the office. As of February 2022, that number of those exclusively remote had jumped all the way to 39% of the workforce, and those hybrid, who worked sometimes in, sometimes out, had jumped to 42%. And those numbers are only expected to continue to grow. And at as of this time, we're seeing many employers, including many of our clients, who are, are entering into relationships with employees where they are offering as a as a enticement to employment either a hybrid relationship or a fully remote relationship so this is a, a situation here that's really here to stay and because of that we fully expect there to be increased scrutiny from regulators as to to how employers are managing wage and hour issues in a remote environment as well as litigation from uh, employees and from attorneys on the the uh, employee side of of the employment bar agreed damien and um you know on the litigation front it's actually interesting uh, that there hasn't been quite as much litigation arising out of the remote workforce issues, wage and hour issues, as I probably expect there to be going into the pandemic and during the pandemic. I will say it seems like, by and large, the lawsuits that have been filed um, have been filed in your home state of California. No surprise there. No surprise uh, there, Jeff. But, you know, we're still we're still coming out of it and in the midst of it. And, and these trends you know can appear at any time so we might still see them but there certainly are pitfalls for employers with a remote workforce that that employers should be aware of um, so we can start with um, compensable work and the issue of what work is compensable um, has been around again since before the pandemic and even before remote work um, and whether or not an employer is aware of work being done, and if it's unaware, does it need to be? Does it need to pay for the work, and so on? Um, you know, that's been around for a while, but it becomes much more of an issue when you have a remote or largely remote workforce. So, addressing the Fair Labor Standards Act, and of course, each state might have their own variation of these principles, but the federal uh, FLSA, the, the the guiding principle there is that all hours worked are compensable as long as the employer was suffering or permitting the employee to work. And then, of course, the question arises, well, what does that mean to suffer or permit to work? And what that means is that the employer either had actual knowledge or constructive knowledge of the fact that the employee was working those hours. 
So, of course, actual knowledge that hours are being worked would be, okay, this is the employee's schedule, and the employee should be working the schedule, so we can expect to have to pay those hours. Um, constructive knowledge is obviously a different concept. Um, and constructive knowledge is, is that the employer should have known with reasonable diligence that the employee was working. So you have a remote employee, you have a schedule of that employee when they're supposed to work, a, a non-exempt employee, um, but maybe they're working additional hours, right? Maybe they're working additional unauthorized hours, right? Under the FLSA, if those hours are even though unauthorized, if there's constructive knowledge that they're working, they need to be paid for it. So the question is, what does an employer need to do to avoid being deemed to have constructive knowledge of additional hours, and whether they're overtime or not doesn't matter, but additional hours being worked by an employee that they may not otherwise have been aware of. So what we advise employers to do and what the wage and hour division, frankly, of the Department of Labor sort of suggests employers should do is have a reasonable reporting system for all hours worked that employees are made aware of and have access to and can use. So there should not be an issue of the employee was working these additional hours, didn't report them, we didn't know about it, and now we have to pay them. Um, what the wage and hour division of the Department of Labor says is that if you have this reporting system in place and the employee is using it, well then you have knowledge and you pay them. If the employee is not using it, even though it's in place, you're generally not going to be deemed to have constructive knowledge of the fact that the worker is working these additional hours. You're not going to be required to dig deeper to find out, you know, surprise, surprise, an employee's working hours that you weren't otherwise aware of or weren't, weren't scheduled. Um, so that's, that's the main thing, is for an employer to have a reporting system in place for employees to report those, those additional um, unexpected hours. So Jeff, how does that play out though in the situation that we often see in litigation where an employee says, you know, hey, I didn't put time in the system because I was asked or pressured to work off the clock. And that's why my time's not in there, not because I didn't avail myself of the system. I would have availed myself to the system, but my manager told me that, you know, I'd get in trouble if I if I didn't do this extra time off the clock. What what is the what are what are the courts saying about those situations? And we do see those claims. Um, and you know, it probably does happen from time to time. Um, where a manager is trying to manage their budget and they tell a non-exempt employee not to report those, you know, all the hours worked. Um, and the answer is that if there's evidence that they're being discouraged explicitly or implicitly from using the reporting system and reporting all hours, well then the employer is not going to have that, that safe harbor um, and they can be deemed to have constructive knowledge of the hours worked. And by the way, one of the other things that an employer should do in addition to having this reporting system is have a clear policy that additional hours should not be worked unless explicitly authorized by a manager um, who has the, has the power and discretion to require those hours. In a remote 
environment though i guess jeff you can kind of see the difficulty in in that an employer might have in proving that it actually was living by those policies with it with a workforce that's not actually in a facility that that they're controlling and that they can fully observe um, so you know what can employers do um, from from your standpoint to further validate that their systems are reliable and that that their policies are working such that employees um, are in the main relying on the the reasonable system are reporting their hours and that there's not a situation where um, that that reporting that reasonable reporting system is broken down right well again so a have a clear policy about working unscheduled hours for non-exempt employees and that they're prohibited from doing that without being specifically authorized to do so have that reasonable reporting system in place that employees can avail themselves of and probably it makes sense to do an audit every now and then right to take a look at what's going on in the workplace um, to see if there's an issue of unreported hours one of the other things I guess that that we have been thinking about and I know we we've 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 chatted with some clients about about related issues to this um, is is the notion of how um, the kind of the line can get blurred sometimes between um, compensable as in business activities that are performed at home and then personal activities that are performed at home for example um, as you know might happen um, someone is working at home and they need to go and um, you know attend to to some issue at home they just oh you know what? it's right I've got to go and um, take those two items out of the garage that I was going to give to my neighbor or I've got to go pick up my dogs from the vet or you know some sort of the, 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 where where the employee may pull away from business activities for a short period of time and uh and, and go and do something that is personally uh or a personal pursuit what if anything can we tell employers i guess for how to deal with those little gaps or 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 uh uh Gaps, maybe is the right word. <laughs> no, yeah, that's, that's a good point. And those and moments where they're engaged in non-compensable activities. And this is, frankly, one of the things I hear from employers most as to why they don't like, some employers don't like remote work, because they don't believe that or they can't prove that their employees are working all the hours they're supposed to be working and that they're being productive necessarily. So um, this is something that, that is a challenge for employers. And again, it comes down to a certain extent to policy, right? And your policy for promote remote workers should say that if you are not working, you need to log off and report that and, and log back and report log back on and report it when you are working. Um, you know, and they're not and to the extent that you're conducting personal uh, activities during the workday, you know, we're not responsible for paying for that. Um, but that's not to say there aren't pitfalls with that, right? Because um, there's certainly a significant amount of case law out there that says that um, if an employee is essentially on call, right, or has, is responding to emails, right, or has to make themselves available for work, that that's compensable work time. So somebody might be at their kid's soccer game 
right? For all those soccer parents out there. Um, one of which I know you are. Yes. Um, but, uh, you know, you might be, a, you know, a non-exempt worker might improperly be at their kid's soccer game when they're on schedule, but if they're emailing and they're on the phone and they're working, that still may be compensable time. Now, that's not to say an employer can't discipline them or fire them for doing that if it's against the policy of the company, but as to whether or not it's compensable time, it's probably compensable time if they're actually working while they're doing that. If they're completely shut down, then that's a different story. But mostly, I would say an employer should err on the, on the side of paying for scheduled time. Uh, but if they believe somebody is ultimately not working when they should be working, then they should take disciplinary measures up to and including termination. Right, and that's always really the best approach to those uh, those types of situations, right, Jeff? Is to is to address the productivity, the 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 lack of productivity, as a performance management issue rather than as a as a wage and hour issue. That that if employees are on the clock at times when they are working, and and all evidence or, or there's no evidence, let's say, to suggest that they were you know, fraudulently recording time that they weren't working, then the best approach is, of course, to pay that time and, and to handle that as a performance management issue. Um, I will say, you know, it does create um, a little bit of um, a, a question mark, I think, too, for a lot of employers about where the work their work is being performed because it may not always be in the employee's home right and and you mentioned soccer and and i certainly have done um my fair share of work um, on my laptop in the parking lot at the soccer field and i know i'm not the only parent yeah. <laughs> well luckily that. you're only an hourly employee as far as your uh, clients are concerned <laughs> yes <laughs> otherwise I'm hourly exempt. Worker. otherwise i'm <laughs> exempt but but you know and maybe this is an issue i think that touches on on exempt employees as well, Jeff. But but I know we've also had clients who have had questions about where in the world, not just is my is my um, employee at soccer practice, but is my employee in an entirely different city or a different state or a different country doing this work, and and how might that impact my uh, my wage and hour obligations? Is that something that you've been hearing from clients about, Jeff? You know, I, I haven't gotten that question from a client uh, as to, you know, does the location where my employee is doing the work uh, impact my, my, my obligation to pay them? Um, I will say that brings us to something else that you and I have talked about before, which is which laws apply to that worker, right? right? Because if I have a office in Texas, right, where there's not a ton of regulation concerning wage and hour issues for employees. Um, but my employee takes a road trip to the People's Republic of California, where you are, yes. and they're working out of there, uh, you know, all of a sudden is the employer subject to those, to those employment laws? Um, and the answer is they very well could be. Um, so employers should, should want to know and should know where their employees are when they're working and should also have a policy regarding that. Right, that you know, if you're going to be in another state or locality for more than X period of time when you're working, as opposed to vacation time, um, that needs to be authorized by the firm. So, Damien, speaking of compensable time, 
talk to us about breaks. What do, what do employers with remote employees have to, have to consider regarding meal breaks, rest breaks, that type of thing? Sure. So meal breaks and, and, and rest breaks are uh, oftentimes um, an important topic. Um, and oftentimes it's a state-specific topic. There's no federal law that generally requires employers to provide a meal break or a rest break um, or structures a requirement around breaks in any particular way. Um, there is a requirement in, under the FLSA that if you're going to have a break, there's to be a bona fide break. Um, but aside from that, you're not actually required to provide a break. That changes in the states. And a number of states have uh, specifically either legislated requirements or requirements created by um, state agencies or a combination of the two that dictate when, how long, how often employees need to be provided with breaks. And of course, in a remote work context, um, that may change the employer's obligations in terms of how to ensure, if they're required to ensure, or at least how to provide and make available these breaks. So Jeff, there's a meal and rest break requirement in New York, right? Sure is. Um, and, and some states, by the way, don't have any, which is interesting, but um, New York does. Uh, there's a 30-minute lunch break that's mandatory for employees who work over six hours. Um, that's 30 minutes of unpaid, non-compensable work time. Um, and the requirements that, generally speaking, if you give breaks for 20 minutes or less, they must be paid. Um, there also are some other break requirements considering employee, regarding employees that work night shifts, double shifts, things like that. But the basic principle in New York is that for every six hours, there needs to be a 30-minute lunch break. That's the only mandatory break time. And of course, out here in California, we have some very robust meal and rest break cases that to anybody who's either been an employee or an employer in California um, should be more or less familiar. But, but those who have not had the, the experience of, of, of being in California, they may seem uh, <laughs> quite a bit different. California, is, is, as far as meal breaks are concerned, requires that employees receive 30-minute meals um, for shifts that are five hours or longer. Um, and California also specifies when that break has to take place, which is before the end, <laughs> <laughs> which is before the end of the fifth hour of work. Um, so an employee cannot be required to work more than five hours without having a break provided. There is one exception to that, which is if the if the shift is six hours or less and the employee and the employer sign a written waiver agreeing to waive that break, then in that very specific context of a, of a shift that is no more than six hours, uh, the employee can waive that meal break. So that's sort of similar to New York with that six-hour threshold saying if you work over six hours, mandatory meal break, except the difference is the waiver of that break, even for the under six hours, has to be in writing. Correct. Correct. And of course, California also 
has an, another meal break that has to be provided for long shifts that go for more than 10 hours. So again, the idea is, is you know, for five hours worked, generally speaking, there should be a, uh, a meal break provided. Now the law doesn't really specify what happens after 12 hours. Um, so there's no clear requirement under the law that for a shift that goes you know, beyond 15 hours that a third lunch has to be provided, but it is very clear that a second lunch has to be provided um, at 10 hours. Right, so, the, so I guess the takeaway for employers here is that A, you need to know where your remote employees are working Right, because you know they may be working in a state they weren't working in before because they're working remotely now, and you may be subject to those laws. You need to know what their break requirements are, and you need to make sure that your employees are actually taking those breaks where they're mandatory in states like New York and California. Right, right, and this is particularly uh, important, I think, for for businesses that are out-of-state businesses that come into California on a project basis. And I have and countless clients <laughs> that I've dealt with in this situation, Jeff, where they're a New York business, let's say, and but they have a project, they have a contract in California to come in and, and, and set up systems within this company, or they, you know, oftentimes we have it in, in, in entertainment, you know, it'll be a, 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 a music performance or a film shoot or something of that nature where they are coming in um, for just maybe a week or two and but they're taking on employees in california during that period of time and it's vital in those situations for um, those types of businesses to understand these requirements with remote workers you know obviously and this was something we were touching on in the segment before it's it's a little bit tricky as to whether you as the employer either a know that the employee is in california and b want the employee to be in California and that may have an impact on the analysis but but again in the situation or in the the environment that we're in now Jeff where we're seeing a lot of companies hiring employees where they location is no object right if you are a a New York empl employer and you're happy to hire somebody to do web development anywhere in the country and you may hire a web developer who is based in California, um, you're very likely taking on these types of break obligations um, as a consequence of hiring that person based in California as opposed to somebody based in another state. Yeah, and, and given the labor shortages and how difficult it is to find people, then that's, that's what employers you know, are doing in part is they're allowing employees to work remotely or to, to join the company from working out of state remotely. Um, so they have to be they have to be aware of what those obligations are again there's no there's no mandatory federal requirement that breaks be given um, but each state and some localities may have their own rules about that and the employer needs to be aware of it of course Jeff failure to comply with these state requirements can lead to um, liabilities for employers and that may be as simple as making employees whole for um, time worked that they during breaks that they weren't paid for um, or it could result in some pretty hefty penalties um, that we can sometimes see out here in California associated with uh, meal and rest break violations under the the law the law out here um, so there's a real incentive for employers with a remote workforce to take 
good care in making sure that they're, they have good policies in place um, surrounding breaks and that they have ways to more or less assure themselves that, that employees are able to, that the employees are taking or are able to take the breaks as the law requires. So Jeff, we've talked about how to define compensable time for remote employees. And we've talked about how to deal with uh, break compliance issues relating to remote employees, but we haven't really quite dealt with the elephant in the room around re remote employment quite yet, and that's the business expense issue. And of course, uh, many companies out there are figuring out a way to ways to reduce their expenses in the current economic environment, and in some respects, the the, the enthusiasm for remote work for the the among the workforce creates a good opportunity for many companies to reduce the cost of their physical footprint by you know either subleasing some of their office space or moving into smaller footprints altogether and so with that the, the knowledge of that of, of that upside out there in the world, there are quite a few intrepid plaintiffs lawyers out there who are, are, are advancing a different type of argument um, about the ways in which remote work is kind of pushing the expenses of running a business onto the workers. So Jeff, what can we say about uh, what employers need to know about handling business expenses now uh, under this new normal of remote work? Right, Damien. So under, just to sort of set the context, uh, federal law, again, doesn't have a specific requirement that expenses incurred by an employee, whether remote or, or not remote, uh, must be reimbursed by an employer. Um, but what it does say is that to the extent there are uh, employment-related expenses that an employee is required to incur that, re that result in the employee's pay being below minimum wage, that's a violation of law. That's a violation of the minimum wage requirement. Um, other states, or I should say states, uh, many of them have specific laws regarding reimbursement of expenses, unlike federal law. So for instance, in New York, back to New York, New York's labor law provides that employers who fail, neglect, or refuse to pay what they call benefits or wage supplements to their employees um, can be held civilly liable. They can also be held guilty of a misdemeanor. Uh, but under New York law, that only applies to those type of, of benefits or wage supplements that the employer agrees to provide. So in New York, if you agree to provide your employees with reimbursement of certain expenses, okay, then you're required to do it, and if you don't, that's a violation of the law. But there's actually no specific provision under New York labor law, which is surprising, which just says generally that employers have to pay the necessary or, or expenses inherent in their, let's say, working from home or in their employment generally. Um, other states take a more direct approach to it, which is like, for instance, Massachusetts says that an employer should reimburse expenses that are, quote, unavoidable and necessary for employees in order for them to fulfill their job responsibilities. 
the, the remote workspace is, you know, is that printer paper, right? Is that um, buying a computer if they didn't have a computer, right? Is it ink for the for the printer? Um, other things, I know you've seen some some interesting things in that regard too, right? Jeff, in 1937, the California legislature enacted Labor Code Section 2802, which says, and I'm quoting, an employer shall indemnify his or her employee for all necessary expenditures or losses incurred by the employee in direct consequence of the discharge of his or her duties or of his or her obedience to the directions of the employer, even though unlawful, unless the employee at the time of obeying the directions believed them to be unlawful. So this language, which actually talks about kind of the specifically um, indemnifying an employee from liability in case they're found of wrongdoing um, because of, of following the direction of the employer has been all the way extended to covering all of the business expenses of <laughs> employment that may be incurred by an employee. One of the most significant cases um, to deal with the issue of business expense reimbursements was a 2014 decision called Cochran versus Schwann's Home Service, Inc. And in that case, the California Supreme Court held that an employer must reimburse an employee for the mandatory use of the employee's personal cell phone for business purposes. So the idea in that case was that these employees who were in the business of at-home food deliveries had to use their personal cell phone as part of their job. And because the cell phone use was required, the, employee, the employer had to pay the business portion of the cell phone expense to the full extent that that could be discerned. And that's something that employers in California now have been navigating for close to eight years. Oftentimes what happens with something like a cell phone that has a personal aspect as well as a, as a business aspect is that there's some sort of apportionment that the employer attempts Again, with the idea that the employee can come in and try to seek a greater reimbursement with proof that the expense was larger than the amount that was apportioned. It's very common for employers in California to try to tag an amount as a reasonable use of a monthly cell phone expense. It might be 50 or $60. Um, with the idea being that, you know, if you have a job that requires you to regularly use your phone, that maybe 50% of the month you're using the phone for business and the other 50% of the month you're using it for personal expenses. And of course, as a best practice, we oftentimes recommend to clients that have your business expense, uh, your ordinary business expense process backstop this. So if an employee comes around and says, hey, I use way more than 50% of my phone for business, it's closer to 75 or 80%, then that employee should be able to then come forward with an itemized invoice showing that they've used it for all of these business uh, purposes and that the employer is on the hook for a larger amount of reimbursement. But this thinking along the cell phone, the line of the cell phone use could very easily in a, in a remote, either a fully or hybrid remote environment extend as well to the home internet provider or to equipment that is used for the home internet connection, like a cable modem that may be rented from the, the, the ISP or, or purchased by the employee 
um, and that the employer has some obligation to, uh, to reimburse for some of those expenses as well. Maybe they need higher speed internet at home to be able to go on remotely and be productive. Maybe they need a better route, a new router. Yeah, I mean, those are so the type of things that maybe they need home security infrastructure, you know, some kind of firewall or VPN, or you, you know, you could could go in a number of different directions. Yeah, antivirus, firewall, yeah. software. So, I mean, we're looking at everything from printers to chairs, right? Maybe you need a real desk chair that you haven't had. Or a desk itself. Extra monitor, charging station. I mean, there's all sorts of things. So, you know, there needs to be, again, a policy that the employer has about what type of expenses it deems necessary, right? And what type of authorization an employee needs to incur that expense before they incur it so that the employer can can make a determination if it's not part of a standard list as to whether that's a necessary or unavoidable business expense in those states that have that type of language um, that needs to be paid by the employer. It's all about having a system in place to make sure that you're not caught unaware and all of a sudden subject to a class action lawsuit in some state where you have a bunch of employees working remotely. Right. And, and we should, you know, Jeff, we should also make a note on the end here um, about, you know, those terms necessary in California, unavoidable in Massachusetts. It, those terms do have meaning. And certainly in, in California, if an employee is choosing to work remotely, then the employer's burden is much less. If the employee is choosing to transact business on a personal cell phone, the employer may not have any, any obligation at all. And certainly we see in circumstances where, um, you know, with remote work, the employer says the office is here, <laughs> you know, at, at 123 Main Street. Come in if you, if, if, if you like, we've got space for you, but if you wanna work from home, you can work from home. That is a situation in which that employer may avoid um, significant responsibility to reimburse the employee for. That's an excellent point, Damien, and that's, that's, that's a very good point. And, um, and in fact, I've discussed that with employers, uh, and I'm sure you have as well, um, whether they want to put a policy in place says we are, we want everybody in the office, okay? If you want to work remotely, you can, but that's your choice. We have all the facilities here that you need, and you're perfectly capable of coming into the office. Um, therefore, if you choose to work remotely one, two, three, four, five days a week, whatever it might be, those expenses are for you to bear. Now, I think the cell, the cell phone in that particular fact pattern may not necessarily follow in that analysis depending on other factors. And, you know, we know even before COVID, um, where we had an environment um, where, you know, the office is here, sometimes people, especially if you're exempt, you know, you can take a day working from home here and there, but you're expected to be in the office, but you're also be expected to be responsive when you're not in the office. If you're out and about on client calls, if you're an attorney and you're in court, or if you're, a, you know, or if you're a salesperson, you're out on sales calls. 
um, or, or, or you name it, um, what device are you using to be responsive? And if it's a personal device, even if you've said as the employer, hey, you know, come into the office or don't come into the office, it's your choice. But when you're not in the office, we need you to be responsive and you're going to be re responsive on your own device, then there's probably an obligation there. Um, Again, one of the things that a number of employers have often done to try to avoid that is to provide a device. And, and that's a choice employers can make as well. Finally, let's take a look at the states at some wage and hour news and developments at that level. Starting off in Massachusetts, in an opinion on April 4th, 2022, called Reuter v. City of Methwin, the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court held that companies that fail to pay wages owed to employees on the day of their termination may be liable for up to triple the amount of the previously owed wages. These treble damages are based on principles of strict liability, meaning that they can be applied regardless of the intent of the employer or how quickly it corrects the error. This decision marks a major departure from what has been the prevailing interpretation in Massachusetts since 2003. And then finally, we have a fair amount of news this episode out of California. Um, first, the California Supreme Court has confirmed that employers are on the hook for additional penalties whenever they fail to pay an hour of extra pay when an employee does not receive a proper meal or rest break. In a decision called Naranjo v. Spectrum Security Services, the court took up the issue of whether penalties for pay failing to pay all wages due at the time of termination and for failing to include required information on employee pay stubs extends to the employer's obligation to compensate employees with an extra hour of pay for missed meal breaks. The Court of Appeal in Naranjo had previously ruled that those penalties were only available for wage claims, and break claims were claims for penalties, not wages. The Supreme Court, on the other hand, rejected that view, stating directly that the penalties are intended to compensate the employee for work performed during the break. Naranjo is another instance in a fairly steady line of recent employee-friendly decisions relating to California's complex meal and rest break requirements. Finally, in California, take note, five localities in California, City of Pasadena, Los Angeles County, the City of Los Angeles, the City of Emeryville, and San Francisco will be increasing their minimum wage rates effective July 1st, 2022, as follows. In Pasadena, the minimum wage will increase from $15 an hour to $16.11 on, on July 1st, 2022. In Los Angeles County, the minimum wage rate also at $15 an hour will increase on July 1st to $15.96 an hour. In the city of Los Angeles, the minimum wage rate also at $15 an hour will increase on July 1st to $16.04. In Emeryville, it will go up from $17.13 to $17.68. In San Francisco, it will go up from $16.32 to $16.99. And that wraps up the second episode of the Wage and Hour series of the Ackerman Angle podcast. We thank you for listening and we appreciate your support. If you have any questions or comments regarding our podcast, please email us at podcasts at ackerman.com. Again, that's podcasts at ackerman.com. We welcome your input and we may take in or we may answer one of your questions on an upcoming episode.